in today's pluralistic world, we can come off as intolerant, closed-minded, backwards, or even as an enemy of the common good if, if we claim and when we claim that there's only one way to God. I remember as a junior in high school, it was actually my 11th grade French teacher who I was in a conversation with who said, do you really believe in Jesus? And the context of the conversation is, could you be that close-minded? Fast forward, 15 years later, I'm the French teacher, but I'm sitting at the faculty uh, dining table, and you know the sound bites are coming at me so quickly. Same kind of thing. Do you believe in Jesus? Dash. Is hate a family value? And finding myself longing for an answer. How do I respond to this? How do I respond to these accusations, these thoughts? Does the Bible have any way to help us? Am I, are we the first people to have ever experienced this dilemma that in a pluralistic world, it's awkward when we say there is one way to God? The great news about the passage that we're about to read is that it it helps us in two ways. The first way it helps us is it gives us some basis for this exclusivity claim of Jesus. You know, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So it's Jesus who said this. We're going to look at another passage. That comes from the Gospel of John. But in this other passage, we're going to see some basis for that exclusivity claim. And the second thing is, we're going to get some great ideas. We're going to get some great help as far as how, in a pluralistic culture, we can live the gospel and hold on to this claim. Does that sound like a good idea today? I want you to know that I think I speak for Brian and I both when I say, we have an incredible desire to equip you. We are doing our job from Ephesians 4, 11, and 12 if we are equipping you, the saints, for the work of ministry. And I think something that Brian and I are living and breathing kind of week in, week out is we long for you to experience Jesus in your homes. We long for you to experience Jesus in your relationships. We're longing for you to experience Jesus in your work world. And that's not merely through having an apologetic edge, you know, as we might share a little bit today, but in every way, we just want you to be equipped to flourish as a son and daughter of the Most High God in all that you're doing. I hope you hear that passion. And this particular series, this What If series, is trying to equip you with the main messages that are coming through the culture these days. How can you respond? What does the Bible say about how we can respond and live? So let's look at second, excuse me, first Timothy chapter two, verses one to seven. First Timothy chapter two, verses one to seven. And a couple words about the context here. The first is, remember that this is the Apostle Paul who is writing to his mentee, his apprentice, Timothy. And he's charging Timothy with a couple things. This is how you need to be a Christian leader, and this is how you need to administrate the church. So it's just good to know that that's what we're looking at here. And another thing about the context is, so Paul is really passionate about doctrine. He wants to make sure that things are pure but he's not just doing it in this academic sense. He really wants it to come out of a heart of love. So actually, as, as he says in 1 Timothy 1.5, he says, the aim of our charge, basically Paul's saying, what I'm trying to do here is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 
And this particular passage that we're going to look at, 1 Timothy 2, 1-7, it's totally instruction on how to live the gospel in a pluralistic culture. Let us not forget what the history tells us in Acts 19. In Acts 19, we see the people of Ephesus, where Timothy is now in charge of the church, the people of Ephesus rioted. And why did they riot? They rioted because they felt threatened by this new religion, this Jesus, because what Paul was saying was that gods, this is from Acts 19, gods that are made by hand are no gods at all. And it really bothered some of the craftsmen in Ephesus because they're silversmiths creating these little Artemises, this goddess Artemis. And so if everyone turns to this Jesus, their economic well-being is threatened. My point is that the passage we're looking at, Paul speaking to Timothy, they're no stranger to pluralism or antagonism towards the gospel. So we can get a lot of comfort from this passage. Let's start to look at it together. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7. First of all then, this is Paul saying to Timothy, this is how to lead the church. He says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, even people who worship other gods, we could say there. Verse 2, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Verse 5, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, excuse me, men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time, kind of the right time in history. And for Paul says this, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I love this parenthesis here. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. Thanks, Paul. A teacher to the Gentiles in faith and in truth. All right, let's walk through this a little bit. And um, let's, let's see what's happening here. All right, so first, you know, the great thing is Paul is asking us to pray, right? And that, as I noted briefly, in these first two verses, he's saying, he's not just saying pray for the people who believe like you. In fact, it's highly likely from the experience that we just mentioned in Ephesus in Acts 19 that most of the leaders, the kings, the rulers that were in authority over this crowd were not believers in the one Jesus. Isn't that great? Paul starts out saying, let's start by praying for those who are different than us. Let's pray for these leaders. Why? So that there is enough peace so that we can live the gospel, right? So that we can live godly lives that are dignified, okay? And that's why we pray. Another thing thing to pull out right away is from verses 3 and 4, do you hear God's heart? Because that's the thing that's always contested, right? We as believers, the culture around us, everyone's accusation is how can God be good? You know, the very things that Brian has been preaching on these last two weeks. How can God be good if there's all this suffering? And here Paul makes it really clear, here is God's heart. God's heart, verse 4, God's desires that all people should be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And we know that God has wanted this 
from the beginning. Remember back in Genesis, when God begins to speak to Abraham, he says to Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 3, that it's in you, not just the Jews, but all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through you, Abraham. Speaking prophetically about what happened in the lineage, all the way up to Jesus, who then would be the source of salvation for all people. Deuteronomy 4, Moses is reflecting on the Exodus. Moses is reflecting, reflecting on Look at how good God has been to us. He's rescued us. And his reflection is this. He says, hey, Israelites, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God and there is none other beside him. Right? They're going into a very pluralistic Palestine. They're going into a very multi-God Israel area uh, of, the, of, um, of the Old Testament. And he's saying, know therefore today... And lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath, and there is no other. God has always been revealing himself as the one true God. But now let's get to kind of the kernel of this thing, the basis of this exclusivity claim. You know, Jesus saying, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is where it gets really fun for me. I do have fun in other ways, but this is one way that I have fun. It's verses 5 and 6 here. It says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony of God given at the proper time. So two words that get me really excited. Two words on which I can have a lot of fun are mediator and ransom. And this is where the exclusivity of Jesus starts to take shape and gets wonderful. Mediator. Who needs a mediator? Yes, all of us. Uh, I'm thinking, okay, someone who's guilty when there's conflict, right? When there's conflict, that's when we call in the mediating team, right? When the union wants this much money and the city can only pay this much and they just talk at each other to the blue in the face, then you call in the mediator, Right? They need help. Well, we needed mediation too, didn't we? What is our beef with God? Or better said, what's God's beef with us? We've got a sin problem, right? We needed a mediator to mediate this impasse. There's an impasse because God requires holiness and justice. And what do we give him? I don't know about your heart, but my heart gives him a bunch of crap sometimes as far as obedience is concerned. I'm not that good at it all the time. So Jesus, the only sinless God-man is able to serve as the mediator between a sinless God and a sinful people. We need mediation. But you know what makes his mediation the best? Because a lot of other religions have other mediations, and we'll look at those briefly today. But what makes Jesus' mediation the best is the second word, ransom. To me, this is the real separator of Christianity, of the story of Jesus from any other religious system in the world is that we have a mediator who is willing to be our ransom. Jesus alone gave himself up as a ransom. He gave up all of his rights and privileges and submitted himself to a cruel and violent death on a cross. He was raised from the dead as a sign of his power. We needed to be bought back, and only Jesus was the mediator who also served as the ransom. 
So do you see that the exclusivity of Jesus, do you see that Jesus is, is setting himself apart as very different from other situations and other religions? Let's talk about that for a second. You know, a common argument is all paths up the mountain lead to the same place, right? All religions are the same. Well, as a gifted evangelist said, whose nephew is in our audience, this is Cliff Connectly uh, from his book, um, Help Me Believe. He's David Connectly's uncle. Cliff says this, saying that all religions are the same is kind of like saying, hey, all white people, you all look the same. All you Chinese people, you're all the same. All you black people, you just look all the same to me. It's kind of offensive, isn't it? Doesn't it beg some further investigation? Actually, no, all white people don't look the same. You know, there are some subtle differences between us. You've got to get to know them a little bit, right? We can say that about black, Chinese, any group you want. But so when people say, hey, all religions are the same, you just have to say, hold on a second, there are some fundamental differences. Now, the great god of the universe called Google tells us that there are 12 religions on the earth. Okay, I'm going to just talk about six of them right now, all right? And what I want to do is I want to show the contrast so that when someone says, hey, all religions are the same, you can say, well, let me just, can you hang on there a second? You know, I'm trying to imagine in your water cooler conversation, if this comes up and you're with a Confucianist, a Taoist, a Buddhist, our people have those leanings, which is not as unusual anymore, especially the further you get into the city of Boston, uh, that can happen. So it's a few things. All right, let's, we'll just go alphabetically. Buddhism, right? Buddhism attributed to Siddhartha Gautama, sorry, Gautama, the Buddha, and Buddha means awakened one, sometime between 500 and 300 BC. And the whole deal there about, and by the way, let me just do an asterisk, is I'm not an expert on comparative or world religions, so this is just my invitation for you to research more. Please don't take everything I say at, at its face value, meaning please do some research on your own. I'm just trying to get you started here. But from what I understand, what Wikipedia and Google and all these wonderful sources help me understand, is that <laughs> Buddha, the, 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 the ultimate goal in Buddhism is the attainment of this sublime state called nirvana, right? But at that state, we kind of lose our individuality, and that's the goal. Well, that's in direct contrast with, say, Judeo-Christian understanding, which is that God counts the individual as really holy and into heaven, we still remain our individuality. That's a big difference. Confucianism, based on the teachings of the Chinese philosopher Kung Fu Tzu, then got anglicized to Confucius. He was born in 551. I don't know when he died. Wow. Maybe. Anyways. <clears throat> so, but he believed that society could be perfect if the people who lived in it exhibited beautiful conduct. That would be great if we all exhibited beautiful conduct. So now here's a difference between Confucianism and Christianity. Confucianism, what is not offered, or what is offered uh, not as well as how to exhibit beautiful behavior. But I think what Christianity can state is that we understand that we can't exhibit beautiful behavior except that the beautiful one comes and lives inside us. And that's Jesus. Only Jesus can empower us to exhibit beautiful conduct, and even that won't be full until we get to heaven. What about Hinduism? Hinduism is more of a category. It's a fusion. It's a synthesis of a lot of philosophies originating out of southeastern Asia, India. And uh, 
Wikipedia calls it the oldest religion, okay? Um, uh, and it's characterized by worship of many different deities. It actually reminds me of Greek mythology, where the many, many deities of Hinduism are to be feared, they're to be appeased. And so it's this constant behavior modification that needs to happen, a giving of this, that, and the other, so that the God is appeased. Whereas, in sharp contrast, right, Christianity recognizes that the God of all the universe has been appeased by Jesus. Okay, he has been appeased. And so the general disposition of our Father is one of tender mercy. I just read it devotionally this week in Luke when Zechariah is announcing uh, um, what his son, John, who will become John the Baptist, is like. He says one of the things that John the Baptist will do, he will be a witness to the tender mercies of our God. That's the character of Jehovah. A little different. Judaism. Of course, the roots of our own Christianity come from Judaism. It's monotheistic, like ours. It's based on revelation, as ours. But of course, Christianity differs in that it sees Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah, as the one who is the answer to all these beautiful passages in Isaiah that have talked about a suffering servant. We see Jesus of Nazareth as that one. Islam, a monotheistic religion as well, based on the revelations of Muhammad, considered the last prophet who lived from 570 to 632 after Jesus, as we know. So the claims of Islam are that Jesus was not God, but a prophet, that he did not die on a cross, but there was some substitution for him. So they see God. I'll just say this now as a matter of practice. In other words, my experience, and I have certainly not experienced the wide breadth of Islam. I've experienced North African Islam, and I've experienced Lebanese Islam. But my experience there with talking with Joe Muslim on the street, their understanding, their practical theology is this. That is that they too, they have a, an all-powerful God, Allah, and that at the end of their life, they can't know now, but at the end of their life, their good deeds will be weighed against their bad deeds. And if it comes favorable on the scales, they're okay. So for the young Muslims that I was with, their understanding was that they were in mega deficit at that point, but hope to make that up later. In other words, sleeping around, drinking al- alcohol and all this. And I don't, that's not characteristic of every Muslim. But I will say that in Algeria, Tunisia, and Morocco, the Muslims that, were, that I met, the young men, were uh, almost entirely aware of this deficit as young men because of all their sins and were looking forward to, you know, just, you know, they've got a few more decades to change that balance. Okay, so maybe the practical working out of the Islam that I experienced in North Africa. Finally, Taoism, or Taoism, depending on your phonetic preference, a philosophical or religious tradition of Chinese origins, but now totally uh, made its way to Japan as well, means the way. Its origins are from 2700 BC, so it seems to me after Hinduism this would be the next oldest. The idea there is that living in harmony with the Tao, or the way, this is where yin and yang come from, that um, that will allow for cosmic harmony. And again, this differs from Christianity in ways similar that Buddhism does, in that this ultimate goal is rather ambiguous and impersonal. It doesn't seem to uh, relate to all the, the cries of the heart for a personal God. Again, just a little help for you, so that when someone says to you, all religions are the same, you can say, well, I don't know that that's true, and here's why. But I think what is more relevant for you and me is what um, a lot of people who study religion call the nuns. 
And by the nuns, I do not mean women in habits with black and white who look like penguins and say the Our Father and Hail Mary all the time. I mean nuns, N-O-N-E-S, this growing category, actually a very rapidly expanding category in our country of people who claim no religious affiliation. When I think of my own um, interactions with people on the North Shore, I'm very aware of this rising category. Sure, there are tons with Catholic background, tons with uh, some other faith backgrounds, but among the de facto religion of a lot of young people, as the stats bear out, is this rising group of nuns, people who claim no religious affiliation. So how do you and I, how do we relate to the atheism? How do we relate to the ambivalence? How are we to relate to the agnosticism or the antagonism, or at times, how do we relate to the pluralism of this current culture? We've just looked briefly at the passage, but now I want to pull out from the passage the four tools that this passage gives us. Okay? There are four tools. I want to give you a toolkit, right? Brian and I are equipping you for the work of ministry in your workplace, in your neighborhood. And I just want to give you four tools to begin that work. It's not a surprise that you live in a time that is antagonistic towards the gospel. It's not a surprise to God that there's a lot of pluralistic things going on, you know, many different beliefs. It's not a surprise to him that there's a lot of ambivalence about him these days. So let's review this passage again, and now with some application in mind. The first being, again, this whole passage starts with prayer. So number one is pray. Can everyone just say pray? The first thing that you can do, and my open invitation to you, is to take the challenge from God of actually praying for, by name, one, two, three of your key neighbors and people in your life and um, pray for them that they would have a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is always square one. I've been so pleased with some of the people in the discipleship groups I've been running this semester. Uh, I'm just uh, blown away by the level of commitment and obedience that these men in particular are saying, I read the scripture, I want to do the scripture. Let's do this thing. And for several of them, They have taken very seriously the uh, imperatives from the Scripture to share their faith. And I'm so proud of the risks that some of them have been taking to share Jesus in different ways with their co-workers and their colleagues. But I just want to say that where that begins is our D group is our little prayer team. So they're not isolated in their prayer. We, our discipleship group, our discipleship group is a time where we get together and we pray. And we say, okay, here's who I'm praying for. I'm praying for Bob at work. He's been hostile to me because he knows that I'm, you know, I'm following Jesus. And he always feels judged by me. I'm not trying to one-up him morally, but he feels judged by me, and I want him to know that Jesus loves him and blah, 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 right? So prayer is the start of the whole thing. Let's start to engage in focused, persevering prayer for an unchurched person. Choose one. It would be great. And you know what's always great about prayer is it's also something that you can call on in the moment, right? I, when you can... When someone is willing to be prayed for in that moment, it seems like it's always a win. I'm very proud. I just saw it happen in an unexpected way in front of many on Friday. I was at, in attendance at a great conference called Q. It's kind of a, um, I liken it to the TED Talks of Christianity. It happened to be in Boston this year. Gordon College's president was there, Michael Lindsay. And Michael was kind of cast opposite a man named Andrew Sullivan. Andrew Sullivan's been blogging since before blogging even existed for more than 30 years, 
and he's been just um, a, a proponent of marriage equality, you know, homosexual marriage being the law of the land, which we'll see actually this Tuesday. We'll see on Tuesday how the Supreme Court rules. But I was so proud of Michael because, you know, this, this whole Q conference is designed for that, creating dialogue between people. And Andrew Sullivan lives with his husband in D.C. and in Provincetown, and their two dogs. But Andrew Sullivan has actually come to the, Gordon's defense in that he said, hey, you know, their religious liberty should not be squashed. And, and to his own, Andrew Sullivan has taken a lot of hits from his own people, so to speak, because of saying, hey, you know, uh, not allowing Gordon to act in its own According to his own conscience is wrong also. Anyway, point is, they get to share for a few minutes. Then there's what they call a talk-back time. Audience is asking questions. So that's where it kind of gets nitty-gritty. And I'm just here observing, and I'm just seeing, you know, two kingdoms are at operation here. You know, there's the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And what, what's, what makes it hard sometimes, because vocabulary can't always match. But I love what Dr. Lindsay did. He said, you know what, our time is up here. He kind of um, asserted himself uh, um, as moderator for a second, he said, you know what, can I just pray for you, Andrew? I'd like to close our time by praying. And he prayed for Andrew Sullivan. And I just thought, thank you, God. Because Andrew Alf Sullivan's a practicing Catholic. You know, he, he has a fear of the Lord in there at, somewhere. And I just thought, thank you, God, that um, what a great leadership move by Gordon's president to pray. Because that just changed the, it changed the atmosphere. Andrew said, I'd love it if you prayed for me. And, and Michael prayed for him, Dr. Lindsay. So prayer, in the prayer closet, praying for someone, and also when the opportunity arises, if the other is willing, prayer for the other person. Okay, let's look at verses 3 and 4. God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul seems very comfortable with the fact that there is a truth with a capital T. And so tool number one was prayer. Tool number two that I want to give you is lovingly challenging the notion that all truth is relative or that truth can't be known. Okay? When the relationship's right, when the time is right, you can lovingly challenge this idea that all truth is relative. All right? And for goodness sake, you can take any truth. I'll just give you the, I'll give you the back formula, then I'll give you an example. The formula is take any truth that most people believe and just make the analogy. And here's what I mean. Um, when Kelsey was away all day and I was in despair, I did what any good father would do. I, I invited my kids into my own hobby and joy, and I said, let's go look at an airplane, okay? So we, went, we, we got a friend that was able to show us the cockpit of an airplane. And, you know, again, I'm trying not to vicariously live my whole life through J.D. and Hannah, but if they were both pilots, I would probably die in peace. Because <laughs> I... I finished, I, I ended my piloting career with about 110 hours, that's it. So we're having a good time. She did, Kelsey doesn't even know this yet. We haven't even talked to each other in two days, for goodness sake. Hi, honey. It's good to see you. What's that? I'll, I'll take my friend later. Um, <laughs> and now I'm embarrassed. And um, <clears throat> we didn't fly because I said I can't take my kids up in the air until my wife, I get permission from her. So I was a good dad yesterday. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Points, points. It was hard. I said, okay, we'll stay on the ground. Anyways, here's the analogy I'm about to say. Imagine if you were flying commercially and the pilot came on and said, guess what? I really don't think gravity is the force we need to reckon with today. I'm going to try something different as we land this plane. How would you start to feel? You'd probably start to feel a little bit nervous, right? 
So what I'm saying is there's a truth there. Yes, we may, in other times, we may live in other time-space dimensions, but for now, gravity has got a hold of all of us, and it's a truth we have to live with. So I just make the analogy, you know? Is it possible that there is a truth that we all must adhere to? And that's just, again, the challenge, right? You just find a widely accepted truth as an analogy and say, maybe, like gravity exists whether we believe it or not, maybe it's the same thing with the Bible. Maybe there's a truth that whether you believe it or not is still actually true. Again, it's a loving challenge when you have enough relationship built up or if someone's in your face and you just, sorry. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> all right. Two tools. Pray. Second tool is challenge. Everyone say challenge. Lovingly challenge the pervasive notion today that truth is relative. All right, third one that we get from this passage is, yeah, this is the fun one, as I mentioned before. There is one God, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. So mediator and ransom are the two beautiful things that make Jesus who he is. And so what I like to do is when people say, but do, you know, because on this whole thing of, is Jesus the only way? I like to turn the argument on its head and say, it's wonderful that we have Jesus. And what I mean is, you're asking me, hypothetical, you're asking me, do you have to believe in Jesus? And I'm saying, you get to believe in Jesus. You get to. In other words, you and I, without help, we are fuzzy. What's God like? Is there a God? If there is, what could he be like? Well, let me just tell you what Jesus said. Right? In John, what is it, 9 or 10? John 14, uh, neither. In John 14, Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Isn't that great? You don't have to be, again, speaking to the one who's searching, you don't have to be unsure about what God is like. We know what God is like because of Jesus being on the earth. He said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Similarly, the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 1.3, he says that Jesus is the, ex- the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, right? What's God like? We can look at Jesus and we can know he's the exact imprint of the nature of God. If we could know what God is like, wouldn't you want to know? Guess what? I've got good news for you. We can know. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell, me, let me tell you about a man who did good everywhere he went, always trying to lift up the oppressed and the poor, loving people even though they are sinful. That is what God is like. So you turn the argument on its head. All right, that was the third tool. First tool was pray. And we're going to make sure we all do that uh, at the end of the service. Second tool was challenge. Just challenge that notion that all truth is relative. Just find the analogy you like, gravity. It's not that one. Find another one. And third one is turn. Can you turn the argument on its head? Or can you turn the discussion? Uh, you know, do I have to believe in Jesus? <laughs> you get to, and it's awesome. And the fourth one, uh, which is so good uh, because Paul does it, is um, you get to share. You get to share a narrative. You get to share a story. You get to share a testimony. Right? If, if, if we are to listen to all of the champions of culture right now, it is that we are in the age of the narrative. We are in the age of the story. It's great, actually. We're, I mean, it's kind of fun in the sense that we're not in the age of prove it to me, right? We're not in that modern era of um, I need to know this uh, scientifically, empirically. We've kind of fat passed out of that phase in certain ways, and we're now in the story of, or we're in the age of tell me the story so I can believe that it's true. This is the age of narrative. 
And so listen to, to Paul. I'll let do verses 6 and 7. So Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given, which is the testimony, it's the story given at the proper time. And um, as Paul says, I was appointed a preacher and apostle of this story, of this testimony. Sharing narrative, sharing story. There's, there's never been a better time for you just being able to share your story, right? And Paul did it actually so well in 1 Timothy 1. He was so at ease with his story. I want to look at that. This is earlier in 1 Timothy 1. Paul says this, I thank him. So what I'm getting to is he was so comfortable sharing his story, even the deep, dark dregs of it. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That's one of Paul's favorite refrains, by the way. When he's, when he wants, this is like him putting the end caps in a text. Okay, should I just yell it? The saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason: that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. He gets so excited, he just prays at the end, right? To the king of ages, he just gives a shout out. Immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Man, there's no, you don't underestimate the power of you sharing your story. Or even just little story, like little S, a little thing you've experienced with God lately. You know, people do ask on Monday, what did you do this weekend? You can say, I went to church. And this is kind of what happened. It was really cool. You can do that without being religious, I guarantee. Right? You just share a little story. Recently, um, with one of these people for whom I'm praying regularly, because heaven's going to have to break open and earth is going to have to shift for this guy to come to Christ. But a couple months ago, he let me in way deep. Like, we're sitting in a coffee shop, and all of a sudden, you know, all the red lights are going off in my mind as he starts to share, and I'm like, whoop, 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 you know, entering the holy zone. You know, this guy's letting me in. So all of a sudden, I uplink my load to the Holy Spirit. Okay, God, how do I respond? This is a holy moment. And I just said, hey, first of all, thank you for sharing. I just said, that's, I feel really honored that you let me in. I said, I just want to tell you something. This isn't quite narrative, but it's almost narrative. I said, I just want to tell you what God's like. Because you know I'm a pastor. I mean, the thing is, he's meeting with me even though I'm a pastor. In spite of my, my work life, he's meeting with me. And I said, listen, I want to tell you what God's like. As you were sharing, I just got reminded of this beautiful picture of what God's like. And the little story I need to tell you is that the person who wrote this about Jesus did it hundreds of years before Jesus came to the earth. It's actually one of the main Bible passages that we like to think about at our church. It's Isaiah 42. And it says, a bruised reed he won't break. And a smoldering wick he won't snuff out. I know you're sitting here telling me that you've messed up beyond, just beyond your own capacity to believe how much you've messed up. But I want to tell you what God's like. He's this kind of God. A bruised reed he won't break. A smoldering wick he does not snuff out. He's really merciful. We were in heaven, and then we went back to earth in the sense that I had a window. And then that, you know, we went on to other things. But God got the window. God got the mustard seed in, right? 
You know about the mustard seed? The little seed, soon it just takes over the garden. I'm believing, that's what I'm praying for this person, is that that little mustard seed will uh, take over the whole garden in his life. A little yeast is going to leaven the whole dough. But we got the seed in. Amen? We get to cooperate with the Holy Spirit to do that. Jesus said that he was the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Our culture has a hard time understanding that. But God is not caught unawares. He gives us four tools in this passage. Pray, challenge, turn the argument, and then share a story. That's how we're going to start to speak to this culture. Not by turning red-faced or blue-faced. Not by getting angry in our rhetoric. Not by being right about everything all the time. But I bet if we start to do these four things, we're going to see more people get a revelation of Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. Amen? Amen. Kevin, come on up. Lead us in some response time. I'm going to invite you to do a couple things uh, before we start to worship in response to God. I'm going to ask you right now during this time to start to pray for someone that God's put in your life that probably would have a hard time with this claim of Jesus being the way, the truth, and life. Obviously, if they're not following him, then they have a problem with the claim. So ask Ask God to share who that share with you who that should be. Family member, friend, frenemy, by name. Just ask God. And you start to pray for them. The other thing I want you to be receptive to, as you begin to praying for this, begin praying for this individual, I want you to ask God, of these four tools that I've just received, the tool of prayer, the tool of challenging, that notion that truth is all relative, the, the tool of turning the argument on its end and saying, hey, you actually get to believe in Jesus. You don't have to. Or the fourth one of, uh, <clears throat> of um, sharing, sharing story or narrative from your own life. You just ask God, which one do I need to deploy next? Which one are you asking me to deploy next? You just ask him. Okay, you don't have to get anxious. You don't have to be uptight. But you'll be surprised at how willing the Holy Spirit is to move with you as you just start to incline your heart and your ear and your way towards that. Okay, so let's do that. Let's pray. And... Um, I'm going to lead us through a response here, a prayer time. Um, If you guys have some flow, I'd love flow. And then I'll get out of here and we'll worship. So Holy Spirit, thank you. You are not taken by surprise. You who was with the Father and with the Son, eternities passed before the universes and the worlds and the galaxies were even created. You are not surprised that this teeny little people on a teeny little planet somewhere in the universe are unwilling to bend to the reality of a creator who loves and rescues them. It's not a surprise to you, Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, thank you that in your wisdom, through the pen of Paul, you've given us a few tools. When the pluralistic culture box and even laughs and mocks at the idea of one way, Jesus. You're not surprised. So Holy Spirit, even now we're asking you to bring to mind someone in our circle of relationships, a friend, a family member, an enemy, who we need to start praying for. Give us prayer for them even now. So you just start to pray silently, 
move your lips out loud, whatever you feel most comfortable with. You just start to pray. Start to bring that person before God. Be, Be a high priest this morning and just bring that person's name before the throne of grace. as you begin to pray for them, just be receptive. Is the Lord asking you to deploy one of those four tools in your toolkit that you just got? Or is there another one that has not been mentioned today? The Holy Spirit's very creative. He'll tell you kind of the next thing that you need to do. thank you that you've called us to be salt and light. You've called us to be an agent that prevents decay in the culture. That's the salt part. And you've called us to be light. That is people who actively make darkness go away because of the presence of Jesus. Thank you that we're not alone in that endeavor, but we have the Holy Spirit to help us, to guide us. Thank you that no move is too small. Nothing done in faith is negligible. Thank you for that, God. I pray that we'd be secure as a church, as your bride, saying, no, we've got one husband and we're okay with that. We're okay as the bride of Christ. We have one. Thank you, Lord.